presentation um, here today. And I also wanted to say, um, as somewhat of a caveat up front, that this work is largely interdisciplinary. Um, so I think it will be somewhat of a different kind of seminar than, than is typical for the departmental seminar series. Um, but I also want to say that I'm very much looking forward to your comments, suggestions, and critiques of this work and how I might bring it into the debates within anthropology uh, more fully. Um, so what I'm going to talk about today is the bottom of the pyramid approach, which is a form of market-based initiatives to development. So let me start by uh, restating a vignette from uh, a woman that I met who's involved in one of the uh, original, sorry, I just got distracted, bottom of the pyramid approaches Avon in Africa. If you tell yourself that you want to do this, you can do it. These words were spoken by Amanda, one of Avon's door-to-door -door entrepreneurs as she stood in the garden of her home in rural Limpopo. Though the South African government provided her with the shell of her house as part of reparations for apartheid, Amanda's home remained sparsely furnished and structurally incomplete. Lacking a ceiling and with a floor pocked by holes large enough for her children to fall into, um, her home could be read as a kind of dream deferred. But when we met Amanda, she was anything but dispirited. Since joining Avon, she said, she had reason to hope for her future. Amanda's anticipated future is shared by millions of entrepreneurs in developing countries today, where companies now sell a range of products to poor consumers at the bottom of the pyramid, typically through a labor force of door-to-door -door entrepreneurs like Amanda. From Procter & Gamble's distribution of sanitary pads to poor adolescent girls in Kenya and Malawi, to Avon's peddling cosmetics on the streets of Soweto, to Coca-Cola's female micro-entrepreneurs distributing Coke to hard-to-reach villages in East Africa, and to Unilever selling soap, detergent, and other hygiene products through BOP distribution systems in Mozambique, Sub-Saharan Africa is becoming the new frontier of BOP accumulation as companies seek to bring the poor into the, transnational, into the sphere of transnational economic circulation as both nascent consumers and in productivity as entrepreneurs. Today, it is no longer only the realm of mineral extraction that renders Africa usable, but the abundance of so-called underutilized labor and untapped consumer power circulating in these shadow economies across the continent, to use business's language. Fathered by the late management guru C.K. Prahalad, the BOP model seeks to marry a corporate logic of profit maximization with development aspirations for poverty reduction, hoping to offset the sluggish growth that they've been experiencing in Western markets by selling life-enhancing goods and services to the so-called underserved consumers and by opening up employment opportunities for micro-entrepreneurs. The model thus reframes development as a seamless outcome of just core business activities, business as usual, asserting that poverty can be alleviated simply by extending the scale and scope of capitalism to what's tier five here, the four billion men and women who live on less than $2 a day. 
Now, these schemes now feature prominently in the corporate social responsibility landscape, part of the pantheon of bottom billion capitalism approaches that champion market engagement as a tool of inclusive global development. And while most often associated with these corporate giants such as SK Johnson or P&G or Unilever, in reality, BOP initiatives embrace a range of firms of varying in sizes and levels of capitalization and orientation. They span sectors from energy to food to cosmetics and hygiene products to health. They're making sanitary pads out of papyrus here in, in Rwanda, Afropads in Uganda, healthcare distribution systems in Uganda, and of course, telecommunications, the famous Mpesa example. They are also less the unfettered outcome of a self-regulating marketplace than institutional assemblages that draw together the private sector, NGOs, international aid institutions, social enterprises, business schools, and the scientific community. These assemblages reflect that broader theater of development that's taking place in Africa today. In contrast to the policy wonks of the structural adjustment era, the last 15 years have brought a new cast of characters onto the development stage in Africa. Celebrities, business, consumers, philanthropic organizations, and new don uh, donors who seek to expunge the behemoth of aid dependency through new business models, partnerships, and modes of finance. From Live Aid and Make Poverty History campaigns to A-list celebrities such as Bono, Angelina Jolie, and Annie Lennox, and to a new mov movement in global funding, the philanthrocapitalists. The perceived nimbleness and dynamism of the private sector is now championed as a way to combat a range of issues, from HIV and malaria to trade justice and poverty reduction. But while the BOP bottom of the pyramid, proposition, with its market-savvy focus on the continent's poor, has found a very cozy home in this landscape, its dominance speaks to another process, one that Nigel Thrift calls the cultural circuit of capitalism, the way that business schools, management gurus, consultants, pro-market think tanks, and parts of the economic media produce and circulate business knowledge in ways that only not, not only generate new theories of capitalism, but remake the world in likeness to these theories. While this theory of virtualism certainly applies here, I'd suggest that this circus could today be widened to include not only the business gurus to which Thrift refers, but the social enterprises highlighted earlier, as well as the BOP labs that are sprouting up at the world's top universities, as well as at the bottom of the pyramid itself. Here's a BOP lab in South Africa, and, and this other one is, is in Denmark. As well as the inclusive business consultants that are out there in the landscape, PwC, Accenture, Business Innovation Facility, and even Business Fights Poverty. And finally, I would add the public themselves, insofar as this information that is circulating becomes instrumentalized for business purposes. And we had this debate at uh, the Said Business School last year with my uh, anthropological colleagues at Edinburgh and Sussex on whether or not this is responsible capitalism or business as usual. And I would suggest that this, too, is part of this assemblage. In particular, the once uneasy bed 
fellows, collaborations between business and development organizations are part and parcel of the infrastructure of BOP capitalism, underwriting most, if not all, BOP schemes. Unilever, for example, partners with Women First to bring toiletries, cosmetics, and detergents to rural consumers in Mozambique. UNICEF partners with the Global Hand Washing Initiative in Uganda. Ditto P&G in their distribution of always sanitary pads to adolescent girls, partners with UNICEF in South Africa, and Fawei and Girl Child Network in Kenya, and Living Goods, P&G, and so on and so forth. These partnerships have populated the landscape of the bottom of the pyramid. So it is this assemblage, the circuits of poverty capitalism rather than business alone, that consolidates and reproduces the BOP model as today's leitmotif for responsible capitalism. But why is capitalism taking what BOP proponents call this great leap downward? I would suggest it is because they are, aspire to make Africa's unusable spaces usable. Now, I borrow this phrase from James Ferguson. In Seeing Like an Oil Company, James Ferguson powerfully described the development of resources extraction enclaves in African states, arguing that contemporary global flows of capital on the continent are characterized by their preference for per particular spaces, producing zones and enclaves of capital investment that are sharply walled off from the vast terrain of what he deemed unusable Africa. Yet in contrast to this rendering, it is precisely the condition of unusability that BOP capital seeks. As it is in forgotten Africa, the unusable, the peripheral, the marginal economies, that the font of underutilized entrepreneurs and consumers are made amenable to market intervention. But how is it that the world's largest corporations have shifted their gaze from Ferguson's Africa of heliports and diamond mines to Unilever's Africa of bicycles, handcarts, and women selling manufactured commodities door to door? How does business construct and normalize poverty as a field for business intervention, charting this apparently frictionless path to reconciling poverty reduction and profit generation? Here I draw from the governmentality literature, Dean, Foucault, Scott, which you all know, that has examined how the technologies of government, notation, numeration, statistics, training, monitoring, evaluation, accounting, and so on, make objects, including individuals and communities, visible, legible, and governable, demarcating who lays within and beyond the state's area of concern. So like the state, the censuses and surveys described by Scott or the observatory analyzed by Foucault, management techniques, tools, and procedures such as market identification, product innovation, accounting, logistics, consumer segmentation, yawn, 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 <laughs> allow global firms, to quote the CEO of Coca-Cola, to see Africa as an essential part of its portfolio. So what ways of seeing do these technologies make possible? At the most mundane, they aim to ferret out the so-called underutilized and invisible poor, those who have long occupied the interstitial spaces of Africans' economies, making them visible to the radar of global corporations and to the broader assemblage of power and knowledge that comprises humanitarian capitalism. But this illumination also makes possible extraction. Um, 
wait, I lost my place here. As the perceived illegibility of the poor, their cultural practices, their social infrastructure become not only visible, but reframed as a resource that can be marshaled, commoditized, and traded through the circuits of capitalism. So I'd just like to spend the remainder of my time today reflecting on how business actually does this, how it instantiates its variant of humane capitalism through particular practices and in particular places. And this is based on research projects I've had with Avon in South Africa, Solar Sisters in Uganda, Procter & Gamble in Ghana and in East Africa, as well as work elsewhere. I suggest that business engages in a process of kind-making, the term originally associated with Ian Hacking or Foucault or even Latour, each of who trace the construction and normalization of new scientific kinds in social and political discourse. Here I use it to describe how business constructs poverty as a very particular type of problem, that of market failure, amenable to solutions at a particular scale, that of the bottom billion, in the context of a particular policy instrument, that is, enterprise. In thinking about how business performs this act of kind-making, that is, how they make African informal economies calculable and classified, embedded in corporate practices, and normalized as a field of business intervention under this banner of corporate responsibility, I take my cue from anthropologists, again, Ferguson, Escobar, Lee, and Moss, who have examined this in the context of international development and how development institutions rent objects of improvement amenable to certain forms of intervention. So drawing on Foucault, Lee describes two practices that underscore the making of a development under intervention. The first, problematization, refers to the process of identifying deficiencies that need to be rectified, making certain types of interventions knowable and thinkable. So when we apply this to BOP capitalism, this process of problematization reflects a concern with market ontology, how certain objects, such as the bottom billion, are defined and framed and made amenable to market regimes. For example, in, diag in diagnosing the scope of its intervention, business tends to recognize only that those problems for which a solution that lies within the competence of the marketplace can be produced redefining development concerns as products, systems, or distribution interventions. So as Peter Chernin, the chairman of Malaria No More said, malaria is a logistics problem. It's a business problem. Indeed, in many cases, the notion that a particular product will be the solution to a development dilemma is a foregone conclusion, as the problem itself is recast in market terms. As the World Economic Forum's report on unleashing the potential of the BOP says, companies can reframe the problems they encounter in BOP markets by finding ways to leverage them into business opportunities. Transforming, for example, concerns around hunger, environmental degradation, and illness into market opportunities for yogurt, cook stoves, and bed nets. This process of problematization, that is, how a phenomenon is identified as problematic and is subsequently designated as a target of development intervention, not only frames the possibilities of thought and the legitimacy of the solutions, thus making a bar of soap or a cook stove as or often more rational than tackling infrastructure environmental management, but it also has a depoliticizing effect. 
pushing complex development issues and, political and, so, and the political and social conditions of their making out of view. Business's process of problemization also draws legitimacy from the tools of scientific knowledge, surveys, measurements, and observations that confer epistemic weight to the diagnosis it propounds, particularly where authoritative connection must be drawn between a development problem, such as hunger and malnutrition, and a market solution. As a consequence, swarms of randomized control trials are now carried out in the urban slums and rural hinterlands of developing countries in an attempt to draw robust correlations between goods and their development outcomes. To give just two examples, Procter & Gamble, which manufactures all-waste sanitary pads, commissions RST, RCTs to demonstrate the link between menstruation and adolescent girls' school attendance in Kenya, Malawi, and in Ghana, while Health in Your Hands, a global initiative that promotes hand washing and hygiene through public-private partnerships, does the same thing with surveys of women's hand washing behavior to demonstrate a connection between hand washing and child mortality, and thus the need to purchase more soap. The evidence generated through these studies travels and is reproduced through reports, academic papers, conferences, and UN symposium, simultaneously securing an arsenal of support to replicate these interventions in other contexts where they might not be appropriate, and assuming authority as a policy response to any range of issues, from malnutrition to HIV. Indeed, scientific assessments of market-based initiatives are now patterned into the fabric of the BOP through all those consultants that I uh, spoke to earlier, particularly in public health contexts where the social credentials of a product depend upon evidence of its effects, such as the burgeoning industries of fortified food and nutraceuticals. Science thus greases a transfer of meaning transmuting the domain of profane commercial products into a sacred sphere of ethical, humanitarian, or social goods. Thus, soap is not simply a cleaning agent, but an antidote to infant mortality and morbidity. Sanitary pads are not only a technology that facilitates the absorption of menstrual blood, they are also a pathway to reduce fertility and girls' education. So under the edges of science, we see this distinction between moral and market economies fall from view. So this process of problematization includes not only businesses' identification of some abstract ill, hunger, disease, and a product solution, fortified yogurt and soap, but also the specification of the afflicted group whose lives will be uplifted through BOP initiatives. They are the value-conscious BOP consumer and the enterprising, self-regulating entrepreneur. This specification works through practices of what Lee, borrowing from Rose terms, rendering technical the domain to be governed as a field that has specific limits and particular characteristics by defining boundaries, assembling information about what lies within them, and devising techniques to mobilize the forces and entities thus revealed. This lens has been widely used to understand how aid institutions produce and enact development knowledge. But here, I'm building on this work to examine how business frames its subject, consumers and entrepreneurs, in the field of the BOP, defining what falls within and beyond the scope of their attention. So let me start with BOP consumers. BOP initiatives need to bring new products that are affordable, accessible, and available 
to remote and fragmented markets. Now, when many BOP initiatives started, they focused largely on this sort of stylized consumer of Western markets, or the consumer that was marketed to in the days of Cadbury, the colonial days of Cadbury and Unilever. So, for example, women are widely viewed as the gatekeepers of these new regimes of consumption. Not only are most of these goods, uh, cleaning products, food, health, and hygiene, purchased and used by women, but they're also charged with diffusing these new consumption patterns through the household and the wider community. And children, they fulfill a, uh, a similar function, either as direct users, here of fortified uh, yogurt, or as agents of change uh, who will catalyze brand loyalty for years to come. But companies have quickly learned that gender and age are rather flawed bellwethers for creating markets at the bottom of the pyramid. But still, their capacity to, to read the needs of rural markets is constrained. For companies, the BOP remains a place about which more is desired than actually known. So NGOs step into the void. They have always made legible the potential consumers of development interventions and act as interlocutors. Their fluency with this lexicon of the local affords them a pivotal role in the BOP assemblage as they navigate between the social practices, cultural habits, and local values of the poor and the global culture of consumer capitalism. Their perceived local Matisse provides a doorway to the millions of consumers that inhabit Africa's untapped rural areas, thus making their unfamiliar social practices knowable and legible to corporations. They thus inhabit what Simmel terms, terms the role Tertius Gaudens, an actor who makes the interaction that takes place between the parties, the poor on the one hand, a multinational corporation on the other, and between himself and them, a means for his own purpose. As Julie Elichar explains in reference to Cairo's NGOs, the Church's Gardens creates opportunities for personal gain by making new connections between two different parties. In the case of the BOP, by lubricating these interactions between global corporations and the rural poor. So global NGOs such as CARE, Plan International, as well as this budding industry of BOP market research firms now gain profit by mining the social networks of the poor, harvesting their effective ties and informal economic strategies and packaging them into a marketable commodity that can be sold to multinational corporations. They are also critical nodes in what companies describe as their market intelligence teams. This is not the market intelligence that fills the PowerPoint presentations in corporate boardrooms. Rather, companies have shifted towards the use of ethnography and participatory rural appraisal to hone what business terms its native capability, that is, their capacity to engage in deep listening and mutual dialogue with income-poor communities. As the CEO of SamSource um, noted, if you are ostensibly serving the poor, how can you serve them if you're not living among them and understanding what their challenges are? The biggest mistake we make as a sector is that we think we can sit in a big institution in Washington, D.C. and understand the problems of the poor by spending one week in a developing country and staying at a five-star hotel and driving around in a fancy car. That's not the way we learn about our consumers. 
As Prahalad and Hammond write, perhaps multinational corporations uh, should create the equivalent of the Peace Corps. Having young managers spend a couple of formative years in BOP markets would open their eyes to the promise and the realities of doing business there. They were prescient. Today, rural immersion programs are commonplace in bottom billion markets so that multinationals like Danone and Nestle and DuPont and Pepsi can acquire a deep understanding of how the poor live and consume and work. And corporate NGO teams now parade together through communities, vacuuming up local knowledge and practices through visits to village elders, homes, churches, health and education facilities, and so on. One company described to me how rural immersion programs enabled him to democratize his engagement with his customers as they open up space for the once voiceless poor to speak for themselves and participate in their own development. Observation and a range of participatory methods are deployed to capture this tacit knowledge, what companies term those hard-to-find, unarticulated consumer needs. So what we see is that uh, participatory map-making will chart things like mobility, um, uh, infrastructure, access to infrastructure, movement patterns, consumption practices, and so on and so forth. And the information that is derived from these exercises forms a knowledge bank, allowing companies to produce a schematic of market potential that classifies the poor in terms of purchasing power, consumption patterns, daily activities, etc. Now this, like Scott said, not only allows business to get a handle on its subject, but serves as an instrument for demarcating who falls within and beyond the emancipatory possibilities of the BOP. But the tacit knowledge gleaned through these forays into ethnography also provide the fodder for tailored product solutions. Rather than imposing pre-existing solutions from above, business now emphasizes co-creation with local communities to design products and services, using the markets of the BOP as incubators for innovation that can be marketed in the north. African informal economies thus become the laboratories for the desires of Western consumers, test bed for the principles of natural selection, as only those innovations or mutations in scientific terms that adapt in the BOP environment can travel up. So though business's use of participatory techniques provides some legitimacy, at least in some communities, signaling an authentic connection with the poor they seek to empower, it also mystifies as not, as not all that is made visible is truly seen. The market research emphasis on locating, mapping, and cataloging unmoors the social practices of the poor from the social and political contexts that shape them. This is not, as John Berger would note, the sort of seeing that makes the poor fully credible part of the visible world. It is an abstraction. The initial distribution for P&G pure water um, uh, solution in Uganda, for example, which aims to alleviate waterborne diseases segmented water usage along this trajectory from rural to peri-urban to urban, while overlooking the practices and meanings associated with fetching, using, and drinking water, thus conceptualizing health as a socio-technical classification of consumers and their products. But maps and the battery of market research tools that are used are not simply parsimonious models of consumption patterns. Rather, they serve as a form of virtualism, producing the worlds they set out to describe. Marketing technologies, by delineating the subjects and objects of profit, both material and moral, set the stage for how capitalism unfurls. 
As Cologne and Mackenzie have argued, they are constitutive of economic action. They are the engines rather than the camera. Now, this process of rendering technical also entails the use of technologies to mobilize and catalyze consumption. As frontier markets for BOP goods, these are spaces where people have to be actively molded into reliable consumers. As Unilever told me when they started their business, the market was not there. It was not there at all. So, be it in soaps or be it in detergent or oral care, when Unilever embarked on this business, what it did was we created this market, cultivating new aspirations, desires, and consumption habits. The creation of BOP markets is a serious socio-technical undertaking, often requiring the construction of new consumer subjectivities and instilling new ways of conceptualizing the body, health, and personhood, and introducing scientific objects such as solar lanterns, vitamins, and minerals, and concepts such as nutrition and wellness. As P&G said of Pure in Uganda, you've got to make a people aware of waterborne diseases, issues of water, period. You've got to convince them that they can do something about that, and then you've got to convince them to use a product like Pure. Similarly, a South African Avon entrepreneur described the process of introducing products to virgin BOP markets, saying, quote, we are not only selling these products to people, but we are also educating them on how to take care of themselves. When she introduced people to Roland, she said, they would ask if they were stinking or something like that, compelling her to ferry her personal stash of Roland's deodorants and lotions around so people could try them. In some cases, there is also not so subtle an allusion to the myriad modernizing projects that have taken root in colonial, post-colonial contexts in Africa, whether those be promoted by missionaries or nationalists or development experts, which sought to reshape consumption, consumer habits through the regulation of their everyday consumption practices. So, for example, like the colonial and missionary officials that expanded the practices and discourses of empire by introducing the disciplines, routines, and practices of personal hygiene, P&G now has an army of contracted nurses who travel school to school in Ghana, providing puberty education uh, and a training that indoctrinates girls in how to change their underwear, uh, use a sanitary pad, and clean themselves. These trainings are legitimized as truth through scientific product demonstrations in which the capacity of different products to absorb blood is tested in situ and through a discursive correlation drawn between the information presented and the approval of this nurse and midwife. Okay, so these marketing education strategies aim to enhance the visibility of certain products, bringing them into recognition as the commercial remedy for development dilemmas. And bodily practices, as we've just seen, assume an enterprise form. Menstruation, for instance, is not simply a maturation process, but a hygienic crisis that, that requires a market solution. And I've certainly seen this in my work. Of course, such campaigns are not only aimed at creating future generations of sanitary pad users or hand washers, but in constituting a hygienic norm whose fulfillment necessitates brand allegiance across a portfolio of products. As Unilever noted, of course, when we're talking about toothpaste, it happens to be close-up. When we're talking about soap, it, ha it happens to be life-boy. 
As marketing has long shown, once you shift a behavior in a particular realm, you're well-placed to offer the consumer convert an entire category of products. So I'm now going to turn to the other type of kind-making that occurs here, and that is uh, the entrepreneur. Because BOP initiatives also aim to remake bottom billion beneficiaries as a particular object of governance, and this is the self-regulating entrepreneur. Because implicit in this BOP vision of empowerment is an ideal entrepreneurial citizen who is going to respond to this moral exhortation to help themselves by embracing these opportunities to sell products door to door. So as Unilever puts it, we are empowering people to empower themselves. So across Africa, this ethos of productive citizenry gained traction in the late 1990s, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, as several countries embraced this national welfare strategies founded on neoliberal motifs of empowerment and self-sufficiency and enterprise, promoting an entrepreneurial citizen who would fill this vacuum left by the increasingly absent state. By recasting the un and underemployed as potential entrepreneurs, African governments not only aligned a national discourse of economic self-sufficiency with the body of these new enterprising individuals, but provided fertile opportunities for BOP's empowerment through enterprise approach. Coke, for example, plans to empower 5 million women by 2020 through their employment as entrepreneurs who will deliver Coke to every village, every community, every township initiative that rests on the premise that anybody can succeed if they simply activate their inherent potential. So though these poor are constructed as always already entrepreneurs whose natural enterprise and talent need only be redirected, in practice their initiative must be wedded and engineered. BOP entrepreneurs are made, they are not born. Through technologies of government widely associated with neoliberalism, a grammar of self-mastery and self-determination, practices of behavioral and bodily refinement, and rationalities of efficiency and responsibility, women become what Foucault terms a machine of competences, potentially mobilizing subjects whose empowerment is self-generated by redirecting their capabilities to market opportunities. But for BOP models to convert the economies of poverty into opportunities for individual empowerment and corporate profit, women must be molded into entrepreneurial subjects. On the one hand, through processes that craft entrepreneurial identities and subjectivities, and on the other hand, through management technologies that inculcate the requisite traits of industry and market discipline. For example, women must envision themselves as entrepreneurs before companies and NGOs can capitalize on their labor as instruments for market growth. These ex-anti-subjectivities are produced through techniques of imagineering, a portmanteau that captures this synthesis of imagination and engineering that is now part and parcel of BOP governance, as companies and, and development agencies attempt to singularize women as market actors. So for example, as these images illustrate, one of the main ways entrepreneurial distinctions are, is, are forged is through deportment, and in particular, through the donning of branded uniforms and bags, the material signifiers of belonging. So living goods, community health providers don branded t-shirts and hats, as do Solar Sisters and Yogurt Mamas. 
Avon entrepreneurs in Soweto wear Avon fragrances and carry glossy catalogs and free samples, all of which stylize them as upwardly mobile professionals in the new South Africa. These objects are signature features of BOP markets. They convey ideas about the kind of person a BOP entrepreneur is, and conversely, the kind of person they are not by transposing them into a new social positioning that sets them apart, both from the others in their community and from the alleged backward sphere of petty treat. Here we see a twist on Anna Singh's economy of appearances, as women's bodily deportment generates new consumer markets by conveying the transformational possibilities of the gifts they sell. Um, imagination serves as a staging ground for action in another way, by cultivating what Apoderai terms the capacity to aspire, BOP distribution systems work by fueling economies of expectation among entrepreneurs, encouraging them to author their own personal story of transformation by visualizing their dreams and aspirations, conjuring a future in which previously unimaginable consumption becomes conceivable. For example, Avon has a Build Your Dream activity in which entrepreneurs are encouraged to envision a future born from their self-initiative, one framed explicitly in material terms. So Avon managers assist their entrepreneurs to build their dream by asking them to select images of their desired objects, such as a home extension from magazines and newspapers, and to strategically position these objects around their house as a tangible reminder of their commitment. Through the allure of wealth, these techniques detach women from the constrained world they experience in their present, enabling them to envision a self and full and a future full of possibility. Yet while fanning the flames of aspiration may wet the initiative, and it surely does, of many of these entrepreneurs, it also renders the experience of their potential failure ever more sharp. But entrepreneurial subjects are also constructed through management technologies that aim to instill and assess entrepreneurial performance. In BOP initiatives, these technologies assume many forms, from calculative devices such as time management and performance mechanisms, to pedagogy such as training and sales, recruitment and financial discipline, all of which aim to produce a market subjectivity with clear business acumen. As the Shell Foundation notes, the poor must acquire business DNA, skills and entrepreneurial instincts such as positive attitude, discipline, and hard work. For example, when I attended a training session in Avon and Soweto, entrepreneurs were told that you have to try and be ambitious so that you can succeed. You can make it. You just have to have faith in yourself. We listened as the trainer described a bedridden Avon entrepreneur who was, because of her ambition, the highest earner in the area. Managing her sales, using a phone and a laptop on her stomach, this amazing woman was touted as an example to the trainees who were chided for being outperformed by a woman confined to her bed. The pervasive emphasis on the link between positive attitude, hard work, and material success can have a quixotic appeal, speaking to the latent capacity of each person to succeed if only we develop, exercise, or give rein to our natural potential. But because one can never have enough motivation, enough drive, enough commitment, it means that any failure can be equated with individual deficiency. As Brockling summarizes in his analysis of the enterprising cell, in every incentive to do more, 
the verdict of not enough is hiding. Furthermore, like the crafting of consumer subjectivities, the making of the BOP entrepreneurs is a systemic process that aims, not systemic, systematic process that aims to produce predictability across diverse socioeconomic context. Now this is Bangladesh, but um, these type of maps exist in all sites. For example, BOP entrepreneurs are typically assigned a geographic zone, a demarcated target market for which they shoulder responsibility. These areas are concisely mapped, not through poverty or health or education or other socioeconomic indicators, but through market segments and points of sale. Such zones provide the socio-technical infrastructure of management. It is within them that the poor are observed, inventories are managed, sales and revenues tracked, and accounts assessed. Data that renders these sites readable to corporations and provides a blueprint for sales and growth. But this data does not simply relay facts or make markets more legible. It plays an active role in the reconfiguration of bottom billion economies by functioning as a classification device, enabling business to shape as well as gauge the achievement of entrepreneurial attitudes, behaviors, and skills. For example, those sales data represent product uptake and market penetration, like where and what and how much a product sells. They also represent the entrepreneurial fitness or otherwise of workers, serving as an instrument of value coding that draws a line between the responsible, the enterprising, and ambitious, and those who are not. Only those poor who can conform to a market calculus, the entrepreneurial poor, are visible in BOP's field of vision. In fact, the success of BOP initiatives lies precisely in their capacity to produce new ecologies of belonging and exclusion among entrepreneurs, as exclusion itself is central to the reproduction of BOP approaches. At the end of the day, you still need a pyramid at the bottom of the pyramid. Business will not dissolve the conditions of its own existence. It is not, however, on the on only the entrepreneur, but the entire social infrastructure of the communities in which they live that is drawn into corporate capitalism. Like other new approaches to development, such as microcredit, which mobilize effective ties and social collectivities as a source of economic value, the BOP model internalizes the cultural practices and social relations of informal economies into the fabric of the production process. Women are encouraged to draw their effective world of family, kin, and community into their business, employing a, their social interactions as a source of commercial gain by selling their products to them or asking their, uh, their sister, mother, or daughter to sell them for them. These schemes also familiarize the impersonal, parlaying business ties into fictive family structures that create effective bonds between entrepreneurs. As an Avon entrepreneur, Barbara, described, she actively fosters social imaginaries of family among her team, saying, I make sure that I introduce them to one another. It's like, you are all my children. Meet your sisters. These are all your sisters, and I am your mother. Let's get to know each other. This effective labor serves calculative ends, inducing a collective disposition of emotional obligation among the entrepreneurs in order to potentiate their individual capacities for accumulation. So let me now just uh, offer some concluding thoughts here. 
In their oft-quoted analysis of contemporary capitalism in South Africa, John and Jean Komaroff describe the rise of a, mess a messianic millennial capitalism, one that presents itself as a gospel of salvation that, if rightly harnessed, is invested with the capacity to wholly transform the universe of the marginalized and the disempowered. This gospel forms the crux of the BOP approach, which is charged with inaugurating a new era of humane capitalism that can ferry entrepreneurs into a transcendent realm of self-actualization and offer the rural poor access to life-saving goods. Of course, these initiatives do bring economic rewards and social recognition to entrepreneurs who participate in them, as well as a range of goods and services to people who have seen little of either. But the BOP's brand of privatizing development raises a number of questions about the meanings, practices, and terms under which global capital is linking up with Africa's informal economies. Unlike the legacy of colonial resource extraction or the fields of or the oil fields and cobalt mines that mark private sector engagement on the continent today, multinationals operating at the BOP neither siphon resources directly from the poor nor simply graft existing business models onto the commercial black spots of rural Africa. Rather, they actively construct the BOP, making the unknown frontier of unusable Africa into a ready-made market for global capital through new forms of market governance management techniques from problem identification and market research to segmentation and profiling illuminate the invisible poor and make their, so, their cultural practices, economic strategies, and networks legible and serviceable to the growth strategies of global corporations. This process of seeing and reading the poor while part and parcel of market governance does not precisely mirror the simplifications Scott presaged of capitalist globalization in which the pursuit of corporate profit would produce standardization commensurate with the rational social order of the high modernist state. Firms operating at the BOP do not necessarily seek to incorporate informal economies, those that are off the grid of profit markets or distribution systems, into national grids of standardization and homogenization. To the contrary, it is often precisely the local nature of BOP sites that appeals to capital as value is extracted not through standardization, but rather through the cultural particularity of the poor. It is the specificity of vernacular knowledge, what Scott terms Matisse and BOP pundits call native capabilities, that enables business to identify a development problem and its accompanying market solution, and that provides the justification needed to recast private goods like soap, sanitary pads, and yogurt as remedies for development ills. It is also what empowers them to convert the informality and infrastructure of the poor in Africa into test beds for global capital, parlaying their human, cultural, social, and bodily capital into a new market ecosystem for the sale and distribution of multinational consumer goods. And while the process, as Roy so evocatively describes, converts the shadow economy of the poor into global circulating webs of capital, it is one that raises new questions on how these corporate knowledges, practices, and products are traveling, encountering, and transforming the spaces of unusable Africa. Thank you.